This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have been teaming up for several months now to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. We are proud to announce the Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. And of course, as we've talked many times, we are welcoming donations to anybody who wishes to help support this mission. And in the not-too-distant future, you too will be able to model a shirt just like Chetsra. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Uh, Also, our inaugural mission partner is Buoyancy Digital, founded by Scott Rabinowitz. They are a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. With an ethos, they've been Scott Rubinetz has been digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in use safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, please reach out to Scott at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Well, hello there, Jethro. So good to see you again. Uh, while you've been off vacationing and having fun with your family, uh, I've just been slaving away at continuing to do presentations and other things. So welcome back. We sure missed you. Yeah, it's really good to be back. And it was a real pleasure to reconnect with family, including, among others, my youngest son, who I hadn't seen in almost two years, thanks to the pandemic. So yeah. Um, that was a big psychological boost, but it is good to be back because we've got a lot of issues to work on and a lot of good things rolling out over the next few months. So yeah. I'm really excited. For sure. Well, it, it, uh, I wasn't really toiling away that much. I did one presentation while you were gone, so don't feel, don't feel too bad. And no, but I actually do feel it is important to give you a shout out because even on vacation and even given the dubious Wi-Fi connection and it just net connection that I had. It was amazing every Monday and Thursday to see new interviews roll out that you did the editing for and helped to kind of keep the pace of our podcast going. So I really appreciate that. Yes. Well, it, uh, it is definitely a labor of love and I did outsource the editing and the publishing to someone else, uh, which 
had I had to do all the editing, I would have gone crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's absolutely fantastic. So let's get ourselves underway here. Well, this is going to be a pretty interesting discussion today. We're going to try to cover two topics, which is dangerous. So we may not get to the second one and may have to push that off to next week, but we'll just see how it goes and and do our best. So first thing, um, we're talking about a, a Supreme Court dis, uh, decision that happened over the summer, which was the Mahonoy Area School District versus BL for Brandon Levy. I think we can say her name now. She's over 18. Yes. Brandon, she's yeah, that out. I better check that. <laughs> no, she, she, I, was, I was going to leave with that because she, in fact, has given a number of public interviews now as an adult in which she's talked about this case. So even though the Supreme Court refers to her as uh, BL, uh, we, we can refer to her as Brandon Levy. Okay, great. So why don't you give us an overview of this case? Um, and I, I have a lot of opinions about it, but Well, as a former school administrator, this is absolutely up your alley. So I I expected you to have thoughts. So anyway, uh, the Mahanoy, um, and and I apologize to those of you from Eastern Pennsylvania who actually know how to pronounce that, but the Mahanoy area school district is where this case arose. Uh, That school district is roughly in between Scranton and the state capital of Harrisburg. Um, so I guess maybe not entirely Eastern, but on the Eastern half anyway. So basically the situation was this, and you know, the general facts of this, uh, I think Jethro that, uh, Brandy Levy had tried out for the varsity cheerleading squad. She didn't make it. Uh, they offered her a position on the JV. Um, it is, so I think accurate to say that she was not happy with that particular decision. Um, and you know, being a teenager, uh, for her recourse was to um, basically uh, express her opinion about the decision on Snapchat. And yet again, Snapchat shows up in our discussion as it does pretty much every week. So in this particular case, she sent out two snaps. And uh, for those of you who might have little ones listening, I'll give you a five-second language warning um, because uh, since the Supreme Court read it out in full, I feel we could talk about it in full. But that's your warning. And so anyway, Levy was at a store called Coco Hut. She did a selfie with a friend where they were both holding up their middle fingers to the camera. And the caption read, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. So she was pretty unhappy. And, Mm. you know, that's a fairly clear opinion. And then the second one just showed a caption. So, you know, with all of these messaging apps, of course, you can simply do text instead of text in in an image and the text read for that second image love how me and blank another student get told we need a year of jv before we make varsity but that doesn't matter to anyone else and that was followed by an emoji with the upside down smile which we all know is the universal symbol for unhappiness so that was the context of the case now hey i was going to say for a second that was, that was a brilliant explanation of Snapchat and made, made you sound even more old than you actually are. So nicely done. I just want to recognize that real quick. And well, you know, you just got to lean into the H stuff. <laughs> it was good. So the other thing is that, um, yeah, just to interject, I'm trying to hold my opinions for a minute, but hmm. one of the thing the problems that kids have is that they think that because it's ephemeral, that it's only on for 24 right. hours, that there are no repercussions or consequences because of that, because nobody's going to see it. It's not going to go viral. Nobody's going to record it or take screenshots or anything like that. They're right. just, they think I'm just showing this to a small group of friends, only the people who follow me. And there's not going to be anything that comes from it. And you again and again, we have to say that's just not the case. Things, uh, once they're on the internet, it is very difficult to get rid of them, even if it's in an ephemeral service. So you just need to be aware of that as you're posting anything. Right. And that's a hugely important point. And, and the thing is that with Snapchat, of course, you've got degrees of ephemerality, right? Because the original concept of Snapchat was built around something that would disappear. And I think it was basically zero to 10 seconds. And then other stuff, you know, began to have a little bit longer life. And then they did these Snapchat stories which can last up to 24 hours. 
And the real, the real issue or the problem I've had with Snapchat all along is that they don't do a good job of explaining to kids and frankly, to many adults, how easily that content can be captured. And actually what happened to Levy is a perfect example. So she sent those snaps to a limited circle of friends, you know, a private group of friends, but one of them happened to be another cheerleader who showed that to her mother. And then that got shown to the coaches and so on and so forth. And so you begin to see how easily any digital content can be captured and redistributed. I mean, this has been something I've been writing about for a decade. It is, you know, the fundamental issue with respect to digital technology. So what so, ended up and as, as a principal, what I saw more than anything was kids bringing in evidence of other kids posting on Snapchat, but knowing the Snapchat records, if somebody takes a screenshot, they just record it with another person's phone. And so there's no, like there may, you may think that there's that protection, but it's still not there because other people just record it with another phone, which happens all the time. Absolutely. Well, and then I'll go back to my favorite example real quickly, which is Anthony Weiner, who in his third incident of inappropriate sexting with someone sexted with a 15 year old using the signal app or telegram, I forget which one it was. And she recorded those text messages literally as they're disappearing and then turned that evidence over. And that's what led him actually to going to prison. So yeah, there's numerous examples of all of this. Any case, let's roll through the Levy thing real quickly. Cause we do need to get to your opinions to make sure that, that we share this, but with respect to Levy, uh, what ended up happening was that when the coaches learned about her vulgar posts, uh, they, um, kicked her off the team. Um, basically told her that she was going to have to sit out for the coming year. She did issue an apology for doing so, uh, but the school refused to back down. So then she filed a lawsuit in federal district court. She won at the district court level. She won at the third circuit court of appeals, which is the circuit for Pennsylvania and other states. And the school district decided to take it up to the Supreme court because they wanted clarification on under what circumstances can a school uh, impose punishment for something that a student says online? Yeah. And um, so when you say she won, so what does that mean at the lower levels? Um, well, basically, situation? right. At the lower levels, what that basically means is that she got a ruling that her First Amendment rights were violated. Now, in practical terms, of course, She's already graduated from high school, so she's not going to go back and do, um, she's not going to go back and do cheerleading. But the thing is that that gives her potentially the ability to recover, uh, some kind of, um, damage award for the infringement of her first amendment rights. And I don't know what, to what extent that has played out yet, but this basically says that the school um, did not have a right to impose that punishment, which then does leave it open to the potential for civil suit. Yeah. And, and this is an important thing for school leaders to understand because a lot of times school leaders are not involved in any of these decisions after they make the initial suspension or in, enact the initial discipline. And it is the higher ups, the district superintendent, the attorney for the district and other uh, the school board who are aware of how these things play out. And guess what, Fred, nobody ever talks about this. Nobody ever says this is how it ended up because they keep all that stuff private and secret and, and don't share that with most principals. So you don't know what ramifications your decisions could have. And I think that that piece is really important for us to talk about here also, because even though she was suspended and that was later overturned or uh, or her first amendment rights were violated because she was suspended for that thing. That doesn't change that she was out of school, that she was separated from her peers, all that stuff. None of that changes. You can't go back and, and put right. the kid back in school. If that someone is, ex right. if someone is expelled, you can have that process and they can come back to school, but there's, um, but there's, so that stuff has already been taken care of. And now it's other people trying to figure out the next steps and how we resolve this, which eventually leads to money for that person, um, which is right. really and the only yeah. restitution that you can make at that point. Well, that's exactly right. That was the point I was going to make is that the, the concept of the judicial system 
and our civil litigation system is that at some point you put a value on the injury she suffered, hmm. you know, in terms of public ignominy, uh, the loss of the opportunity to participate in the sport or the activity, um, so on and so forth. Now, of course, it's a very rough calculation, right? What if her cheerleading career had gotten her into a better school, you know, at, yeah. co at the college level? How would you ever know? You know, so these things are really, really difficult to quantify, but, you know, obviously you just do the best you can. Um, but that, that, that would be the avenue. And to your broader point about the extent to which um, this is relayed to administrators, you know, that's very much a district by district thing. I know that some districts do an excellent job of really trying to educate administrators and to some degree teachers about these kinds of legal issues because they are the front line right? That you've got an administrator who is faced with a situation. They have to make a decision that, you know, right about there. what the, yeah. right that, what the appropriate course of action is. There may not be time to, to consult with legal counsel or even the superintendent, you know, so obviously the more education you can do about these things, the better. And frankly, one of the things I'm hoping we will be able to do today is to help educators and administrators understand how the parameters are shifting a little bit with respect to speech within schools or outside of schools by students. Mm -hmm. So the real issue here is that she said inflammatory things um, and was mad and expressed <laughs> herself in that way. So yes. using foul language, um, not good, sharing it with other people at school, the real issue that it comes down to, from my experience, is that she brought the drama of her situation into the schoolhouse, and that's where the school leaders made a decision to uh, to punish her for that. And right. typically, that is what we school leaders are counseled to do: is to engage in those things and um, and devise a consequence when that stuff that happens outside of school comes into the school. And that's usually how we make those decisions is if you bring drama in, then it's like it happened at school and there's going to be a consequence. That's absolutely right. And if you go through this decision, um, one of the things that the court is talking about are the circumstances under which a student can be punished. And a little bit of this goes back to our history in the 1960s, which getting back to your age comment, I have some experience <laughs> with, but with respect to that, uh, the court was really focusing on this decision, uh, comes under the title Tinker, uh, which is well known in first amendment circles. And the question under Tinker was, um, could students be published for wearing black armbands to punish, excuse me, to protest the Vietnam war? And the court was saying that there's two things going on. First of all, students don't lose their First Amendment rights or their rights to free expression just because they're in school. But at the same time, schools have a substantial interest in the operation of the schools. So basically, schools have three categories that they can regulate. Number one, indecent, lewd, or vulgar speech. You know, particularly at things like graduation ceremonies or school assemblies or things like that. Number two, speech that might promote illegal drug use. And most famously, the recent case of Bong Hits for Jesus, Morse v. Frederick. Um, many people will be familiar with that. A couple of a group of kids held up that banner when the Olympic torch was going through in Alaskan town. Uh, you must remember all of that. And and basically, the court said that that was speech the school could regulate. I, by the way, think that was a ridiculous decision, but be that as a fact. And then the third one is that if you've got a um, if you've got student speech that appears to be endorsed by the school in the context, for instance, of a school newspaper or a yearbook or something like that, then the school has greater grounds to regulate. The challenge here, though is that this was really purely off-campus speech. And to your point about disruption within the school room, um, that was actually one of the things that the, the school told the district court and then the Third Circuit. And the, the Supreme Court said there was actually no real evidence that there was substantial disruption. So that piece kind of fell away in terms of the actual facts of the case. Well, the, I believe from my experience that the, the substantial disruption was that everybody was talking about it 
and that it right. was distracting from the school process, which I think is a weak argument. And you should, as a school leader, have be able to allow conversations to exist. But what I imagine was that everybody was up in arms that this girl did it. And there was probably a lot of pressure on the school principal to do something to react because that was so inappropriate. And this is, you know, this is often the case that a school principal will feel pressure to do something um, because of the community, because of what they want and because parents are calling and being upset about it. And, um, and you, you don't always make the right choices in that regard when you're being pressured like that. But I'm sure that because everybody was talking about it, a suspension was seen as a way to keep the conversation down. And all that does is it makes the conversation happen behind closed doors instead of being out in the open because right. people are still talking about it. Obviously now today we are on a podcast, <laughs> not anywhere close related to it. Right. Well, clearly your, your point is well taken because basically now we've had a four-year conversation if you take into account the courts over this particular incident. And let me, let me toss out one, co- one quote from the opinion, which I think is, is relevant, which is that the court, which by the way, ruled eight to one on this, which is unusually uh, unanimous or semi-unanimous for the Supreme Court these days. But it said the desire on the part of the school, quote, to avoid the discomfort and unpleasantness that always accompanies an unpopular conversation is not sufficient grounds in order to impose some kind of sanction for speech unless the school has legitimate reasons, as we discussed. So I think we can move on to Apple in a second. But the last thing I'd like to say, because I think this is really useful for administrators, is that the court refused to announce some kind of general school speech principle, which frustrated a lot of people. But it did offer three guidelines that I think may be useful uh, for administrators to keep in mind. Number one, a lot of the ability of schools to impose sanctions is based on the concept of standing in loco parentis, that is to say, exercising parental authority while the students are under the control of educators or the schools. And the court said that that will rarely be true when you're dealing with off-campus speech. Now, obviously, cyberbullying and other more severe things would, in fact, give that kind of ability to, to impose sanction. Um, the other thing is that the court was saying that given the nature of social media and electronic communications, if schools can regulate off-campus speech, then that effectively gives them 24-7 control of student speech, which is way too broad. And so that kind of heightens the sense that, you know, students should have a venue where they can express themselves. And then the last one, which I absolutely love, is that the court describes schools as, quote unquote, nurseries of democracy. And therefore, schools have a positive interest in supporting the concept of free speech and free expression. And I, I just thought that was a really good reminder of what schools should be doing for all of us. Yeah. And, and that piece I also thought was the best part was that it, it recognizes that there's value in being, having these uncomfortable conversations and doing the uncomfortable work of figuring out why someone is upset and then giving them an opportunity to air their grievances and whether or not they know how to do it appropriately, but then providing a forum for them to, to, to do it in the right way. And and that I think is so vital. And often, as I mentioned before, schools will use um, these rules about bringing drama into the school as a way to keep that kind of stuff out. And that's really intended to, if someone is saying something on social media and then you come into school and you confront them um, in person about it, that's where they want to say, we can punish you for saying that bad thing off, uh, out, outside of school. Um, online because that was that led to a fight that happened in the school right, right and and that makes a lot more sense but this is somebody just being frustrated um and and it sounds like she was overconfident in her abilities and should have been able she believes she should have been able to be on the varsity team because she was better than others and it sounds like there was this rule that you had to be on jv for one year before you had a chance to be on varsity which sounds all well and good, but if somebody who is worse than you is on varsity, 
and you're better than them, then I can understand how you'd be frustrated about that. Whether or not that's true, if that's what you believe, then I can see how you'd be frustrated. And rather than giving space for that conversation and talking about whether or not that's a good practice to have, they they took disciplinary action so that she would stop saying bad things about the about the cheerleading program, which, you know, all that does is inflames her even more and makes her more upset. <laughs> and well, upset to the point where she went to the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah. the thing, Fred, where it, how do they get to this point? It's it, it seems just crazy to me that so many cases have made it to the Supreme Court about education where in hindsight, we're like, why would you do that? That's stupid. Why would you make such a big deal about it, school? And yet they do. And yeah. and this is where we stand. Well, you know, it's it, it is. That's always an interesting question. And I, I certainly defer to your experience in terms of some of the crazy stuff that can wind up in the courts. And, you know, obviously we we probably are. Well, I don't know if we're more litigious now than we were 20 years ago or whatever, but but litigiousness is a huge part of American life. And that's a real issue. Right. I would like to put a pin in a future topic for us to discuss, which is the, um, the I'm not sure how we'll quite put a handle on this, but in a sense, the decency, the overall decency of society and the lessons that are being taught to children and how that affects the speech that they choose to put out in the world. And of course, I wrote that book a few years ago called The Decency Wars, and, and that was part of it, although it was much more about the organized policy debates. But there's a legitimate question about the way in which kids express themselves online. That might be an interesting thing for us to talk about at some point. It's it's tricky because a lot of different morality pieces pop up, but of course it's within the wheelhouse of this idea of cyber ethics. Yeah. So my last comment about this is that oftentimes when there are these issues with off campus speech and mm -hmm. actions that flood into the school and and how that affects things, my big thing is it's much better for the school to handle it than it is to get the police involved. And so when you get the police involved, you're talking about different kinds of ramifications and consequences. And while I, I don't think that schools should just take a, a free pass and not have to deal with anything that doesn't happen within the time frame of school, um, if it's bringing drama in, I think that they should address it. And our, our job in schools is to teach kids how to behave appropriately. And I think that that extends to their online behavior as well, but it doesn't have to be about consequences. It has, it needs to be about teaching and about learning, not necessarily about the ramifications. So, uh, better that the school handled this in my opinion, than that the girl was, uh, the police were called on the girl and she was seen as a threat or was threatening the school or something like that. Um, because that is often you pretty much your only other alternative. If the school doesn't do anything, then often parents go to the police and say something needs to be done about this. And and that is a, a nuance that I'm sure we could get into a lot more in the future. Um, but that's something that uh, you, you don't have a lot of rulemaking authorities who can help school right. and police. And that's right. a sad situation to be in. Well, I, actually, yeah, that, that I think opens an interesting can of worms, to be honest, yeah. because, you know, if you look at the facts of this particular case, I, I think that the potential legal consequences for the school would have been much more significant if they had involved the police, because there was absolutely no threatening or specifically threatening information contained in those social media posts. So that would have been a wild overreaction. I take your point that there's, it seems like there's no middle ground, right? So if the disgruntled cheerleading parent had gone to the school and the school said, look, there's really nothing here for us to do anything with, it would have been pretty remarkable if that parent had then gone to the police. But I agree with you that that would, that could happen. Would have been remarkable, but that is exactly what has happened numerous times. And for me yeah. personally, not to mention all the stories that I've heard from other administrators. So, so people do that. And that's where it's, it's unfortunate to me because the school shouldn't really be burdened with it. But I think the school has a better, um, 
a better or a more clearly defined responsibility to deal with it than the police do. And Definitely, yeah. yeah, and and that's where uh, my what I've seen is that people will go to the police if they don't get a satisfactory response from the school. And so yeah. <laughs> that that's is- some of that pressure that I was talking about before. Well, and yeah, that's a good point for administrators to think about and to have a game plan in place, right? In terms of working with the school board, having a good relationship with the police department, with prosecutors, so that everybody's really on the same page and everybody understands what the parameters are. I I mean, it is is a sad reflection that that does seem to be a legitimate option for parents in what are truly trivial cases. Yes. I I agree with you. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we'll move on now to uh, talking about the new Apple news about them uh, helping protect children. Um, and I say it's a privacy. <laughs> yeah. So if you go to apple.com slash child dash safety, then you'll you'll see the the announcement that they made and the things that are coming up. And yep. we're going to talk about those things. But I. I want to emphasize first that, that they're doing this from a child safety perspective. And this is one of those things that we talk about all the time, that there are ramifications from doing things to protect one group that um, could be used uh, for other purposes in the future, which is what uh, people who are privacy minded are saying Apple's going to do. We don't have any evidence of that, but that's where people's minds naturally go and mm-hmm. not for nothing. I mean, it's, I think it's wise to pay attention to that also and think, how else can this be used? So, um, do you want to give a little overview or do you want me to? Uh, why don't you start and then I'll weigh in. I've actually got some experience with some of the organizations involved in the technology from my computer forensics, but why don't you yeah. launch us in? Okay. So I, I took this pull quote from, um, Daring Fireball, John Gruber, who writes that, and he wrote uh, from Apple's child safety initiatives, and he just summarized it succinct or uh, brought the the comments in succinctly. So, new communication tools will enable parents to play a more informed role in helping their children navigate communication online. The Messages app will use on-device calculation or machine learning to warn about sensitive contact content. Excuse me, iPad and iOS, I, iOS and iPad OS will use new applications of cryptography to help limit the spread of CSAM, which is child sexual abuse material online while designing for user privacy. So you will, CSAM detection will uh, help Apple provide information to law enforcement for things stored in iCloud photo. So two separate things. And third, updates to Syrian search provide parents and children expanded information and help if they encounter unsafe situation. Syrian search will also intervene when users try to search for CSAM related topics. So uh, on the surface, just looking at those, that sounds good. Messages will let you will let um, let you know their sensitive content. Um, iCloud photos will will scan uh, cryptographically for uh, CSAM content. And then Siri and search will try to stop you when you're searching for CSAM related topics. Uh, so very broad strokes, general information, anything else that I missed there? No, I don't think so. I think the only question is um, whether we can give a little bit more background in terms of, of how the actual technology works, uh, because I think that might be useful for people to understand. And then um, we can talk about some of the implications. So, um, there's a lot of detail you can go into this. First of all, let me let me just point out, because we have talked about this in the past, that CSAM, um, at least in the universe of the writing and so forth that I've done, is a subset of electronic sexual abuse or sexual assault, uh, which I've written about. There's an article on my blog that kind of explains my attitude. But the idea basically being that these are uh, inappropriate images or intimate images taken without the consent of the individual involved. Obviously, uh, some of this stuff is is really awful, and I I applaud the intention of Apple to work on this. Uh, basically, the technology is as follows: the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is a federally funded but unaffiliated organization, maintains what's referred to as a hash database. 
of identified CSAM material. So what ends up happening is that when an individual victim is identified in a court proceeding, any images associated with that individual are transferred to NCMEC, and they use a mathematical process to give a specific uh, signature to those images. And then they get stored. And those that hash database gets shared with law enforcement and with internet service providers, online service providers, and so forth. So in the computer forensics work that I have done, um, there have been numerous instances in which people have tried to send a uh, or saved a draft email that had attachments of CSAM without realizing that the very act of saving a draft email means that the images are uploaded to Google and Google runs a check against the CSAM hash database that NCMEC provides. And if it finds a match, it provides that to law enforcement. The same is true for Instagram. It's true for Facebook. It's true for every major online service provider. So in that sense, nothing that Apple is doing is particularly new. If you are using your computer to store contraband material involving children and you sync with iCloud, Apple's going to get you. (laughs) They're going to run that same process and they're going to identify the images. What is different about this and what has people freaking out a little bit is that now that hash computation of your iCloud images will be performed on your phone. Now, there's a bunch of technical stuff that goes into this, but Basically, what um, Apple has said is that if enough matches occur between images on your phone that are going into iCloud and this database, then they will be given the ability or they will take the ability to unscramble your photos. Because remember that your photos on your phone, as well as all of your other information, is scrambled by Apple. And what Apple is saying is if you cross the threshold of matched images, we will unscramble your iPhone, your iCloud photos and report you to law enforcement and we'll disable your account in the process. And so that's all pretty straightforward. There seems to be very good technological guardrails with respect to that. But of course, people are worried about this technology being used to scan for other types of photos. You know, for instance, would a Chinese government demand that Apple put in software that would enable it to scan for, uh, you know, subversive individuals or Uyghur images or what have you. And Apple of course is saying, absolutely not, but that's the kind of thing you worry about. Right. And, and I think people should worry about that because even though Apple is not a government entity, they arguably have more money power and influence than government entities um in different parts of the world and so i do think that it's important to be concerned about this there are a few other uh, features that i think are important number one if you're sending things in imessage um then according to apple they're not going to do that for um for anybody who is or i'm sorry when it comes to notifying uh parents of stuff being sent through imessage or through messages period they're not going to notify if that person is over 13. So 13 and older don't get parents don't get notified. 12 and younger parents do get notified. So uh, with with one important point which is that only if the parents have set up family sharing and identified the child as actually one of their children because otherwise Apple has no idea whether or not the individual is a child or not. Yes, exactly. So if if you don't set up Apple family sharing on iCloud then those your your kids will not be monitored for that just like adults are not monitored now if you um if you are sending that stuff or you are storing that information excuse me if you are storing that information in your iCloud then um then it it makes sense that they would be sending it now the difference is is that Facebook and Google and everybody else as you mentioned has been doing it like that for years um because the law requires them to right so it's not like they they just get to they just choose to do this out of the goodness of their hearts but i i believe that the ftc requires it so let me double check my research because your face is telling me i'm i'm off on that 
No, no, no. My, my face is simply saying, I'm not sure. You may well be correct. I, I don't want to denigrate the goodness of their hearts because at all of these organizations, there are a ton of people who really care about this stuff as they should. It may well be that the FTC or federal statute imposes some kind of requirement, but I, I can't point my finger to it. Okay. I, do, I found it. I, you did. Excellent. Okay. Good. We should so put it in the show notes. Yeah. yeah, I will. From the New York Times report on Apple's initiative, this is also quoting from John Gruber. U.S. Yeah. law requires tech companies to flag cases of child sexual abuse to the authorities. Apple has historically flagged fewer cases than other companies. Last year, for example, uh, Apple reported 265 cases to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, while Facebook reported 20.3 million I've been doing computer forensics for 20 years and there is no shortage of work in all right. this stuff. And, you know, for various reasons, which we can get into at some point, the bulk of my work has been in this area. Um, and it's just intense stuff. And I, it, you know, look, it's really good to see, um, individuals, individual corporations do more. Those kinds of statistics really do put Apple under the microscope because they should be doing a better job with respect to all of this. Um, I do think it is important for people to remember that although the major corporations do a fairly good job with this, one of the problems is that with respect to the app ecosphere, there are so many options out there mm -hmm. and there are lots of smaller services that don't do a good job. This is, this is the ultimate case of whack-a-mole and you know, the internet I've written about this in a couple of different books. The internet has blown apart a problem that was largely under control in the early eighties. And once you get scanners and digital cameras and then the internet, mm -hmm. this became almost unsolvable in a way. Yeah. Yep. Well, it, and using that, that data of 265 to 23.3 million, that is, mm -hmm. that is a significant difference. And, uh, that. That quote goes on to say that enormous gap is due in part to Apple's decision not to scan for such material, citing the privacy of its users. And it seems like at this point now they are changing their um, their mind on saying user privacy is not as important as protecting children, which is what what they're they're saying there. So, well, yeah, um, I go ahead. Well, if I may, I guess I would say that they're trying to strike a different balance because when you look at the technical implementation of this. It's not, for instance, that if a single iCloud photo triggers a match, Apple automatically shuts down the account. For starters, there's an appeal process before any of that happens. But I think more importantly, there's some internal threshold with Apple that they have established, and, and they haven't exactly said what that threshold is, but they're going to require X number of matches before they decrypt the user's iCloud photos. So I think they're still tweaking this, right? It mm -hmm. could be that if that 236,000 or whatever goes up to only 700,000 compared to Google's 20.3 million or whatever, they may say, well, we need to lower our threshold so that we're doing more reporting. Um, it'll be curious to see how that plays out. But yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, that quote is spot on that Apple has always said, and we saw this in San Bernardino with the, yeah. the bombers that they were talking about. Um, Apple has always said that, that the privacy of our users' data is sacrosanct compared to these other social issues. Yeah. And I think that that is, so what this really comes down to is, is do you trust Apple and do you trust the government? Do you trust Facebook or Google or whoever it is? And, um, and the, the old adage that if you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't mind your privacy being violated is, is not right because at, at some point it's not, it's not about whether or not you're doing something wrong. It's about whether or not you actually have privacy. And that's a, a thing that I think most people believe is a fundamental human right. Um, until somebody they don't agree with has their privacy violated and then they don't mind so much. And that's, that's a continuing issue that we need to continue talking about, trying to figure out where the line is. And, um, you know, I read this book, uh, recently by Matthew Mather, who I invited to be on the podcast in September. So that should be interesting. He's a science fiction writer. And one of the things that he talks about is how a, 
a company creates this um, this metaverse, this place where you can go and uh, be somewhere virtually, but not be there physically. And it, he just touches lightly on the idea that there are there are pedophiles and people who who use that virtual space for awful things and and debating the whether or not privacy is appropriate for people who do that. And and that's one of the challenges that we face as we start to figure some of these technological tools out is um, is how we manage that. And I'm of the opinion that that is wrong, period, end of story, and should not be tolerated in any way, shape or form. Um, and at the same time, I still think that people's privacy should be um, should be valued and and people should have their privacy. But just because you're doing something in the dark doesn't mean that it's okay to do it in the dark. And and I don't I don't know what yeah, the exact so- right answer is, but I appreciate this um, this big step that Apple is taking um, in a very public way. Um, that I mean, I think we all knew that the tech companies were scanning for our images, but we never really thought about it. And this just brings it into really harsh uh, uh, relief that is happening. Yeah, and I you know to be fair. That's the bigger we can make this platform, the more people <laughs> will be aware of it. Because I've certainly have been talking about it for a long time. And it's at the core, as I said, of the computer forensics work I do. I would say probably three quarters of the cases I've worked on over the last 15 years have arisen precisely because of this scanning process that takes place at all different levels. You're raising got so many interesting points, Jethro. There's, there's a wealth of podcasts that could flow from this. And one of them is, right, you, you talk about this idea of metaverse. And of course, we're going to have to talk about the fact that Mark Zuckerberg is all hot to trot on actually creating the metaverse. And they're doing all kinds of things with augmented reality, virtual reality, and so forth. We can't ever get away from the idea that with respect to child sexual abuse material, there's an actual non-metaverse victim that is depicted in all of these images. So, you know, whatever kind of fantasy someone wants to engage in, if they're downloading and exchanging or creating, God forbid, these kinds of images, there's a real world harm that is occurring as a result of that. Now, we have long crossed the line you know, particularly with things like Japanese anime and hentai and so forth, where the fantasy, right, the the truly created image that doesn't involve any actual human is readily available. And what mm. do we do with that? You know, we will get into some kind of debate at some point. It would be great if we stamped out the actual harm and that could purely debate the fantasy in which some people engage. And that's a metaphysical issue right there. Should people be allowed to have that kind of imaginative life? Mm. But that's a very different thing from actually causing harm to children. And to the extent that Apple is trying to find a better balance, not maybe the perfect balance, but a better balance in terms of addressing this issue, then that's great. And I think the more people understand how they're applying the technology, the less concern there should be about our individual privacy as hopefully law-abiding adults. I don't think we give them a completely free pass on their relationship with authoritarian governments. God knows Google and Facebook have both caved, you know, particularly to the Chinese with respect to the Uyghur nation. And that's hugely problematic. And that's just one example. You know, so we have to figure out those kinds of balances as well. But this is a a dramatic and important step for Apple to take. And I applaud it too. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think my final comment is, um, people thankfully are not drawing conclusions that Facebook users are, um, are distributing child sexual abuse material and iPhone users aren't because the data, right. (laughs) Would indicate that Apple users aren't, but what we realize is that Apple's not scanning for it like others are. And I can't imagine that people don't have these things stored on their phone. And if they do, because those are real victims, like you said, we should definitely do something to stamp that out completely as much as we can. And like you, I don't know that we'll ever get to that point, but I think it's worth it to continue trying. Oh, absolutely. It it is one of these things that, that one less victim is a positive good. 
And that, right. that is what you should shoot for. Um, with respect to that, though, it is worth noting that, and this is no excuse for Apple, but again, it, it is important to reflect upon the ways in which these different platforms function, right? So Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr and so forth, all of whom have dealt with these issues, Snapchat certainly has, their, um, their content is public-facing. So it's much more problematic if they have folks uploading CSAM that, you know, could be seen by so many others, you know, it's no excuse for Apple, but it's an observation that, you know, for iCloud photos, you're talking about non-public facing material. Now, that being said, again, I think that this is the right move. I don't think that people should be able to hide behind this particular technology in order to distribute or even save these materials because they are ongoing harms against the children. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, very good uh, conversation. Glad Apple's doing something more. I think that's the right thing. Um, Fascinating topics, you know. Yeah, and like you said, we've got plenty more to talk about, so... If you uh, enjoyed this, definitely go to the Center for Cyber Center for Cyberethics.org and click that donate button. We'd love to have more support to continue doing this and spend more time doing it as well. Well, we really appreciate everybody's support so far, and we will continue to do our work. Uh, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. On Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this episode like we did. So if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and, and review in your podcast player of choice. And we appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to sharing our next guest, Sam Bourgeois, with you on Thursday. Thanks so much for listening to the Cybertraps podcast. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.